Hello, book lovers. Welcome to One Lit Chick and Ed. Formerly Two Lit Chicks. Where Julia Boggio and Ed Crocker talk to writers about the books that changed their lives, like Desert Island Discs, but for books. This podcast is for anybody who loves books and considers them to be one of the main relationships in their lives. Each episode, we chat with a well-known writer about the books that changed them. Hello and welcome to episode 7, season 2 of Two Lit Chicks. And I'm really excited because this is my first episode with my new co-host, Edward Crocker. I'm more nervous and excited, but uh, <laughs> let's see how it goes. Did you did you have a glass of wine or did you decide to... Uh, I don't it. think I should publicly reveal that. Um, I may, or, I may or may not be holding a beer can as we speak, but uh, who can say? Who can say? Oh, well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually drinking a, I'm actually drinking a cup of tea. You're drinking a cup of tea. Me yeah, too. Very are British. You, are you using your two lit chicks mug? No, I'm not very on brand, am I? <gasps> I'm, uh, I'm using a, a blank. Actually, no. It says uh, it just has a picture of Game of Thrones, actually, which uh, just goes to show what a massive <laughs> geek I am. So there you go. Well, that's so fine. But anyway, you know, I think, I think I'm I'm very happy to welcome you to uh, to the podcast. So now I guess we're one lit chick and one lit. Uh, whoa, 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 what? This is a family show. <laughs> where, where are you going with this, Julia? I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say Chico. Oh, okay, excellent. Yeah, is that acceptable. <laughs> that is that is very family friendly. Yeah. So this week I have uh, I've checked in on my pre-sales for Shooters, which is now available to pre-order on Amazon, um, and I've I've sold fifty-two digital copies of it so far, and which is good I think because you know I haven't really started promoting it yet. That that sounds very impressive. But the, the, you know what the annoying thing is is that that's only the digital copies. There's no way for me to track paperback sales. Oh, okay. So you can just assume that it's in the thousands. Presumably. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. Tens of thousands. <laughs> That's where I'll make all my money. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been a busy week. I went to the RNA um, Industry Awards party, the Romantic Novelist Association, which was great. It's really lovely to catch up with loads of, uh, loads of old friends. What have you been up to this week? Well, I've mainly been thinking of uh, new names for the podcast, Julia, because wow, One Lit Chick and Ed does get across um, the fact that I'm a new co-host. It's very efficient. Um, I thought maybe we should have a new name. Unfortunately, I couldn't think of any good book, uh, good titles. So I've decided to think of some terrible ones instead. Um, I've taken it. <laughs> well, you're really selling them. You're really selling them. Oh, oh you've no idea Already? what's coming, Julia. You've no idea what's coming. Um, so I decided to take inspiration from Alan Partridge and okay. his uh, infamous terrible TV titles, i.e. Monkey Tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, please Google that if you've no idea what I'm talking about. So let's start with uh, You've Been Booked, which mm-hmm. for no apparent reason makes a pun on football bookings. I think it might be taken, though. Oh, really? Someone's yeah. actually taking my terrible Alan Partridge name. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Apologies. So I've just insulted whoever's podcast that is. I'm so sorry. Then we have Desert Island Books, which t- no copyright issues there at all. Not at all. None at all. We have a spin on a dead poet society, the live authors, <laughs> the live, <laughs> the live author society, um, which is just us being pleased that everyone's still alive. And then we have a personal favorite, uh, book off. So if we have someone who's, um, won the Booker prize on our show, um, we can change it temporarily to Booker off and just shout at them for no reason, Booker off throughout the show until they get really scared. And then last but not least, I say last, I've got about 30 of these, but I'd better mm-hmm. stop. 
Um, last but not least, page burners. So the idea here is that it's not page turners, page burners. Uh-huh. So the idea here is that at the end of the podcast, we get the books that uh, they've suggested and we just burn them for no reason. <laughs> yes, because uh, that always makes good headline copy, doesn't it, people? Burning books. Exactly. Found night 451. Bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say no to all of those. Outrageous. I mean, you know, like, it's not that I don't want to change the name. I understand, obviously, uh, that you are not a chick, but... You know, it's 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 a good name and it's got good brand behind it. So yeah, until you come to me with something that I think is uh, equally good, I'm I'm going to have to say we're sticking with two lit chicks. Well, that's very fair, but uh, also a challenge to our listeners. So can you beat my terrible names and give us a good name, or just send in another Alan Partridge name? That's acceptable as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a good challenge. So shall we get on to uh, our guest of the day? He has, he's he's going to be so interesting. So I actually want to get straight into him because he, he's got a lot of good stories to tell. Let's chat with the amazing Francesco Sedita. I'm excited. Get your latest book fix with the two chicks. Francesco Sedita is an accomplished publisher at Penguin, running Penguin Workshop, an imprint he developed over his 14 years at the company. He attended NYU, where he studied writing and graduated with his MFA. While working on his undergraduate degree, Francesco spent a year as a Saturday Night Live writing intern. In his time as a publisher, Francesco has worked with Anne Rice, Michael Crichton, and Dolly Parton, among others. He developed and oversaw the marketing and creative campaign for the final book in the Harry Potter series, the launch of which broke every sales record in the publishing industry. I feel like I should high-five you there, but you're a New Yorker. <laughs> um, currently, Francesco is promoting the third book in his graphic novel series, The Pathfinder Society, and in 2023, he'll publish two picture books. So welcome to the show, Francesco. Thank you. That's such a nice intro. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so one thing I haven't mentioned is actually that you have also written three, not one, not two, but three books about the Golden Girls. I have. I'm including the Madlands. Doug. Yeah. <laughs> so what, yeah. Do, what do you think it is about the Golden Girls that makes them, that people just love them still? You know, I, I don't know. I think it's just like, it's like sitting down with good friends. You know, there's just always a good joke. There's always sort of some comfort in there. There's a cheesecake in there. I don't know. It's just, it's just like one of those things that never really, you know, it just never really goes out of style in some ways. And so... Uh, Doug, my husband and I had this idea of doing um, A Night Before Christmas starring the Golden Girls. And I have to be honest, I wish we got royalties on that book. We don't. And because it has sold so beautifully. Oh, man. It's like one of those books you go to the, the cash register and you just look over and you go, Exactly. Well, actually, I'll have one uh, of them. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the Golden Girls when we were growing up. It was like it was 9 p.m. between 227 and the Facts of Life. That's yeah, right. We had a lot of a lot of estrogen on those nights, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I know very little about the Golden Girls, so you'll have to teach me. Oh, we could do a whole master class anytime you want. <laughs> Please do. We'll send you we'll send you the books. <laughs> but before we get talking about the books that you've chosen today, I thought it would be a really really interesting to hear your story about how you got into publishing in the first place. Oh, sure. Um how, how much time do we have? No, um, it's um, it's an interesting, I mean, it's terrible when someone says, oh, it's an interesting story about their own story. But it's interesting in as much as, 
um, it sort of made no sense that I would get into publishing. And even though I was always writing since I'm, you know, I think second grade is sort of the first moment that I remember writing something and feeling really proud of it. Um, I was in, I went to NYU and um, I was living in the East Village after I graduated and I wanted to create a show. And so I sort of gathered my friends that I'd, you know, gone to college with and we created a show that ran five years off off Broadway that was um, an interactive show uh, about the club scene. I, I spent some time in the New York City club scene as a club kid named Rocky Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, not R-O-A-D-S. <laughs> and um, I had a, a an incredible friend, have an incredible friend named Eric, who was this brilliant costume designer who went to FIT. So Eric would just make us costumes, you know, a bunch of us every week from, you know, uh, going to uh, thrift stores and things like that. And he was a beautiful, beautiful drag queen named Generica. And I was often his date to lots of really fun parties um, at a club called Club USA. And so I created a show that sort of uh, was based on my 21st birthday party at a different club uh, called The Tunnel. And as an audience member, you sort of were just going to a party. And then there were 14 characters who sort of had storylines around you. I think it was quite quite actually ahead of its time because immersive theater is huge now. Yeah, thank Back you. Back then, I, it wasn't, I like it wasn't so. as much. <laughs> no, not at all. Stroke your ego a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. I mean, it, it's 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 interesting because the Donkey Show, which I don't know if that was a, a big thing in the UK, but here the Donkey Show became a very big thing, um, and that was a disco a disco interactive disco show um, with a Shakespeare theme which was interesting. Um, and that came shortly after us, which was um, interesting because we sort of, I always felt like I was in competition with them. Mm. Um, but anyway, so my phone rang one day and it was my mom and she said, uh, we met someone yesterday. And, you know, my parents like weren't really parents who went out to parties and who went to, you know, they went to dinner with friends, but they, they didn't like have a big social life. They were kind of home, you know, people who stayed home a lot. And they were like, we were at a party and... Which was shocking. And they said, and we met someone and, um, we told them all about you. And it was Cy Newhouse, who at the time really was the owner of Random House. And, uh, my phone rang the next day and it was Random House, uh, human resources. And they said, we've heard a lot about you. You should come in for a meeting. And I was so mad. I was so mad. So I went and this is me being such a little prick. I went. <laughs> At the time, I had blonde hair and lots of piercings, and I was like, fine, this is who I am. This is who I am. And so I went, and I wore a ruffled tuxedo shirt. I wore sailor's pants and platform shoes. And like, kind of like um, a tuxedo jacket, I guess. And nailed I it. walked in. I love it. I nailed it. I nailed it. And I, <laughs> I walked into um, this wonderful poor woman's um, office at, at um, Random House. <laughs> the second I walked in, she said, you should be in publicity. <laughs> and I sat down across from her and, and, you know, listen, we had a great interview. She was actually, I mean, I, if I could ever find this woman's name or where she is, I would send her flowers because she set my career off, you know, but the next day I interviewed at, um, at Knopf, um, the adult division of Knopf, and um, met with this wonderful man who I'm still very close with, who I really think is a mentor. And he hired me. I did not wear that outfit. I wore a much tamer outfit. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my career. 
Yeah, well, and it's been quite a, a lovely long career as well. And that's a great story. I mean, I, I've, I've listened to a few podcasts where you've been interviewed and I was like, I have to have you tell that story because I absolutely <laughs> love it. Do you, do you uh, still wear the outfit? Uh, if it would fit, I probably would. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. That's not really your dynamic now, is it? It's not really, no. It's true, it's true. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so let's let's move on to the first book that was on your list, which is yeah. Very, Very Hungry Caterpillar. So tell us a little bit about why you chose this book. Well, you know, first of all, I, you know, so, I, so now I work in children's publishing, as you um, introduced me. And, you know, there's a bunch of things that, about Hungry Caterpillar. First of all, I think it's just a beautiful, lovely read. And I, I think that there's so much for kids to glean from from experience of reading the book not not to mention the incredibly sort of way ahead of its time um, cutouts in the middle of the book and you know that really puts this book I think on the map in children's publishing for many reasons because it is so it's just such a it just breaks the mold of what a picture book is can be um, I'm also the extremely extremely and I mean this very sincerely proud publisher of Eric Carl and um, I've gotten to, you know, meet Eric and, um, you know, he passed away about a year ago, but it, it was, it was such an honor to get to know him a little bit and to sort of see his studio and, you know, to understand his process a bit. And I think the thing that I really love about the Caterpillar book the most is besides the fact that it's fun and there's lots of delicious food in the middle of it, um, which always makes me like a thing. Um, it's really because I feel like you know, I love the I love the idea of second chances. I love the idea of rebirth, and obviously a caterpillar and a butterfly. You know that that that's exactly what that story is. And I think to show the littlest ones that life can change, and you can change your life, and you can change who you are. I think it's just a really really special message, and it's done so beautifully. You know, all of this work is done um, with tissues and and cut out tissues, and it's just the most gorgeous book. I think. Well, I, th I think there's a quote from Eric Carl, um, which kind of captures what you just said. Uh, like the caterpillar, children will grow up and spread their wings. So I think that's yeah. a really sort of nice quote that summarizes what, what you just said, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing about the, the Hungry Caterpillar is that it can be all things to all people. Because if you look on the Internet, there's yeah. about a million different ways that people have interpreted it or that it can be interpreted. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's so many angles. I mean, you mentioned the food. There's sort of a big um, nutrition angle out there. There's people who sort of view it as this amazing sort of ode to good nutrition to teach children about good food. Right. Um, so I think that... Or, or on the other hand of that, the evils of fruit. Yes. Do not, <laughs> do not touch that fruit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it can be about God and finding God's love, consumerism, capitalism, mm. The natural world versus the machinations of human society. Oh I word. mean, oh God. <laughs> there's, I have, you know what? Both Ed and I have spent a long time on the internet reading a lot of these theories uh, because you chose this book. So, <laughs> wow. I yeah. mean, I've heard some of the theories, but not not all of the ones you just listed. Wow. Yeah, well, it's it's a feminist tale as well, or it's a queer story, or it's a Marx Marxist story. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's an just anarchist like, and I, anarchist parable. Uh, it's my favorite. Really? Oh, that's... Yeah, wow. don't, don't ask me why. That's just what the internet okay. said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, in the internet said. 
But I think the funny thing is, is that when uh, I was reading an article about somebody asking Eric Carle about why he decided to do this, and he was just like, I just wanted to make a book that was a toy with holes in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like a caterpillar could grow. So he did. He wasn't a grand philosopher. You know, it's it's what other people are laying on to, um, you know, the book. And I think that that's just a good lesson that once you create something and you put it out there, it's not yours anymore, is it? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I, again, I didn't meet him often, but I, I did sort of work sort of very close to him and to his studio for uh, many years. And the thing that I, I think propelled Eric and the studio is really um, he was the most joyful man. He just was a happy, curious, silly individual. And it was really incredible to be around him because it was just fun. He just wanted to laugh and have fun. And so even when he would sort of talk to you about things or show you things, he just, um, it just came from a place of curiosity. And I always really admire that. And I think when you really look at his work, um, Caterpillar and on and on, I think you really can feel that sort of childlike curiosity in him, even as he became an older, older human. And just was such a nice, nice presence in this world, such an important presence in this world, I think, especially in children's, but I think in the world at large, he's an important one. You know, when he passed, the Times magazine um, had a great cover of his shoes that he painted, um, that he painted in the studio with. And it was just so, uh, it just was really moving to see that. Do you think he had any idea how successful it would be? Um, I have a stat here that says there's one hungry caterpillar sold every 30 seconds. Yeah. If that sounds yeah. right. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I think he, I think he wanted to make a great book and there's a really good and interesting origin story about sort of how he came to be and how he became the Eric Carl that we know. And I think that he wanted to create and make beautiful things. And I think, um, I don't think he expected the success that happened around Caterpillar, certainly. And I think then as he, you know, became, you know, his feet more planted on the ground in this world, I think, you know, he started to understand um, how he sort of had groupies, <laughs> for sure. Um, and I, I think that was really delightful to him. I mean, another great thing about the book is that it's such a simple story. And I think... I think sometimes the simplest stories are the best ones. Yes. Yeah, like I love that other book that you um, published, the one about the worms. I yeah. can only draw worms. Yes. I really love that book. I love it so Me too. Much. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, you know, and it's just so beautifully simple. And like whenever I read it, I just get a big smile on my face. Absolutely. You know, when, when I started out, um, I started out as a copywriter uh, many, many years ago. And one of the first books that somebody gave me was a book called A Smile in the Mind. And, um, you know, things like Eric Carle, things like the worm book, you know, they do that. They create that smile in the mind, which I think is, uh, it's nice. It's a nice, a nice Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, sure. But, um, but, you know, it's at the end of the day, Very Hungry Caterpillar. It's definitely a book about hope. Um, I have a quote here from Elizabeth Hamill, who's the director of the Center of Children's uh, mm. Books in Newcastle, which is, it is saying that if the caterpillar can become a butterfly, there is hope for all of us, no matter what we look like. And uh, another book that you chose um, is also about hope, ultimately. Kind of. <laughs> very, very, very ultimately. Um, Swan Song by Robert <laughs> McCammon. I am fascinated to hear why you chose this. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Wait, I, can I ask, did you read the whole book? No. 
God, no. Okay. No, I, okay, so I listened to the audio, um, which is a 36-hour listen. <laughs> I listened to four hours. Four hours. I've, I did. Uh, at 1.4 speed. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. I've read the whole book, can I just say. Um, did you really? I, I did, yeah. I, I can't pretend that I enjoyed um, all of the whatever it was, 10 hours it took me to read. Um, but it was certainly an experience. Um, chaotic <laughs> is what I would say. No, yes, I think yeah. I, I actually did quite enjoy it. Um, but it, it really is quite something. I'm fascinated to hear what, why he chose it. Yeah, so so let, let's, let's I guess, explain sort of what this book is. So this book, um, I have a copy in front of me. I want to say it came out in the early 80s. Uh, 1987. 87, okay. Oh, well, that's yeah. perfect. Okay, so the way that I grew up, so I grew up as a very reluctant reader. I did not like to read at all. Um, it was just, uh, it was just hard for me. It, it wasn't about liking it or not. It was just, I guess, it just was such a challenge and it would really, um, I was a pretty good student and it would really take me down when I had to read, you know, when we were assigned books to read, especially in grade school. And, you know, as I got, as I got a little bit older, you know, my parents really tried to help that and tr- try to figure that out with me. And, um, my mother is a, a very pristine reader. She reads, uh, hardcover books. She has, you know, a lot of beautiful bookmarks and they sit on her bedside. You know, she's that reader. And my dad, is a reader, but a very different type. And he's the guy who's going to be like, you know, in the supermarket and see, you know, the rack of books and sort of just pick something up, you know, that he thinks might be interesting. And he'll read paperback, you know, and he'll read something, you know, that he can sort of beat up, you know, he wants, he wants to be able to beat up the book a little bit. And so it was sort of an intimidating household to grow up in as a reluctant reader, you know, and have an older sister who read and, you know, was never a problem. So in seventh grade, so my father had a copy of Swan Song on his bed, bedside table or wherever the heck he was in the car or whatever. And I was really curious about it. Um, it sort of was shortly on the heels of, oh my gosh, there was that major movie. The Stand? No, the oh. movie that, that was on, um, it was on regular television about the apocalypse or about the third world war. <laughs> And I wasn't allowed to watch it. I'm blanking on the name. Oh, I don't remember. So, okay. So I wasn't allowed to watch that. So this book is really about, um, what happens in a, in a nuclear fallout, really, right? And, um, I don't know why, but I had a seventh grade book report and I asked my father if I could read this book. And I read <laughs> this <laughs> book. Sorry. Yeah. I read this book. It's 900. I mean, the copy I'm holding is 913. Nope, 17 pages. And um, I read the whole thing in like two weeks. And I wrote, and my parents were like, why? How? What is this? And I wrote this book report. I'll never forget the teacher was like, where did you get this book? And I said, you know, my parents, my dad was reading it and I wanted to read it. And she was like, oh, okay. But also was shocked that I had read a book that was not over 900 pages in like two weeks. And, but as someone, as one of you beautifully made a transition from Caterpillar to this, one of the things that I, that I do treasure really about this book is that one of the characters is a young woman who, a a teenager who, um, she's sort of a, 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 can we say a mask grows over her face, a skin mask. Yeah, the jobs mask, I think they call it. <laughs> yes, that's right. Grows <laughs> over her face. And, um, you know, sorry, spoiler alert, but, alert, but at the end, 
um, it cracks off and she's sort of gone through puberty and she's become this beautiful young woman. And so it really <laughs> le- <laughs> leaves us on a very sort of positive note. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. About regrowth. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I will be honest. Sales, yeah. I've only read it twice. I read it in seventh grade and then I read it maybe about six or eight years ago. So I think the it's, best way to describe it to the listeners, um, I mean, you mentioned it's about sort of um, uh, <laughs> the apocalypse and uh, a nuclear fallout and everything. Yeah. It's basically like Stephen King's The Stand. I mean, we don't even need to describe the plot that much. It's essentially very similar. You've got this kind of devil figure, haven't you? Um, and he's yeah. trying to lead all the all the heroes astray. And it's this sort of God versus the devil dynamic. And I was reading it, and um, I don't know if you've read The Stand, but as I was reading it, I was constantly comparing it, saying, is this as good as Stephen King? And I don't think it is, but in a weird way, it's a little more fun, I think. It's less kind of like long-winded and pretentious. It's like if you took The Stand (laughs) and said, let's just suck all the long, unnecessary passages out um, and just have a bit of absolute madness and chaos, and let's just see what happens. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually think that's a really good comparison because, yeah, Thank The Stand you. was w- wonderful in many ways. But, yeah, I, I'm with you on the more fun part. I, you know what? I think that this type of book, he's leaning into, I mean, Robert McCammon, the, the author, is leaning into, like, you know, going really mass market, like, just really writing sort of a very commercial, juicy book. Yeah. It is. And you know what? In the in the four hours I listened to, by the end of that four hours, you know, I wasn't I wasn't turned off. I was like, I could have continued listening to it. Yeah, but I'm not going to. But, you know, and at times I actually thought his ability to create atmosphere was almost Ray Bradbury esque. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, so I think that, you know, it wasn't. There was there's there's a lot of good in the book. I think it is it is definitely readable. I mean, I don't want people to get the idea that they shouldn't try it out. But um, yeah, no. But I it's mean, also yeah. okay if they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yes, if, if, if you don't have the time in your life. If you see, Julia has a social life, Francesco. So that's why she didn't right, to right. thirty six hours. But I don't as much. So I was very happy to just you know dedicate two days to uh, to reading this. <laughs> you know what? Though it did it did uh, create a very uplifting chat between me and my husband about oh. what we would do in a nuclear winter and um oh, oh i think i think the conclusion we came to was that we would just die <laughs> we would just die listen that's the way to that go was, that's the way to go that is the best best option <laughs> this is such a good question francesco are you a um are you a sort of walking dead style i'm gonna go out and kill all the zombies kind of guy or are you a just sit in the bunker and hope it all gets better kind of guy it's a really defining personality trait i think I will be drinking wine in the bunker. <laughs> Very wise. And you're welcome to join me. You're welcome to join me. I will find spot for you. But I, you know, th- like those scenes in this book. I mean, the thing about this book, right? So I've read it twice in my life and it's 900 pages and the, I still remember things really vividly, you know, and, but that scene of like, you know, when they walk through the tunnel, they walk through, I guess the Lincoln tunnel, maybe think so yeah it's it's just horrifying it's like i don't need to walk through that i don't want to walk through that tunnel on the best of days i certainly don't want to walk through it in the you know in the sort of end of the world moments yeah i'll be in the bunker yeah i I would join you i'm a coward so i'll join you i'm not saying you are oh good but i I am so (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'll just be dead. So, yeah. There we go. <laughs> so I am really, really struggling to think of a uh, good segue into the next book. Uh, think about survival, yeah. I suppose, trying to survive life. But uh, the next book that you chose was Becoming a Man by Paul Monette, which yeah. came out in 1992. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about this book and why you chose it? Of course. So I, for me, Paul Monette and, and, and this particular title, uh, Becoming a Man, was sort of a rite of passage that happened um, with my friends at, at about the age of, I guess, 19 or 20, when most of us, we all sort of came out at the same time, my group of friends from NYU. And it just sort of was one of these books that got passed on, you know, sort of in a secret handshake kind of way. Um, you know, it's such a beautiful book and it really is about, you know, a writer, a wonderful writer, a really beautiful, wonderful writer reflecting on how he sort of came to be the person that he is, uh, which is, which is a gay man, uh, you know, in, in one way or as part of him. And the thing that I think is incredible about this book, and I probably have read this book, oh my gosh, eight times, 10 times is that I think every time I read it, there's something else to take away from it. And every time I read it, I feel like I get to know him in a totally different way. And this book is also really um, special to me because after my um, sort of sailor pants and, and uh, ruffled tuxedo shirt interview, the next day I had my interview, as I said, at Knopf and um, with this man named Paul Bogarts, who's sort of a legend in, in publishing world. And, um, he was like, you know, what, do you, what, what are you reading? What have you read? What do you love? And I got into this with him and it was such an incredibly beautiful conversation with him. Someone I'd never met before during an interview that I also, I sort of knew that he was going to offer me the job based on that connection and really became, it sort of became a differently important book for me because I also felt like it taught me how to speak like an adult about books if that makes any sense, mm. as opposed to a student in a classroom. You know, I was at, listen, you know, one of the biggest publishing houses in the world, all the things. And I, you know, I really held my own in a conversation about the book. And for me, I, I guess there is a strange connection to these books, but, you know, Caterpillar, Swan Song and Becoming a Man, it's really about finding out who you are in, in the face of turmoil, especially with Becoming a Man. You know, his life was not an easy life and his mm -hmm. childhood was hard, but he sort of became who he was and took the time to write this beautiful book for, I think, not just other gay men, but other humans to and, understand. And, you know, to realize that he wrote this just before he passed from uh, AIDS as yeah. well. I mean, it just adds another level of, of poignancy to it. Absolutely. It's a heartbreaking book. It's beautifully written, beautifully written, but also extremely heartbreaking. I, I um, found so many phrases in this book that just broke my heart. I mean, astonishing prose, astonishing prose. There's one that um, I picked out. Uh, you think you've put all the self-hatred behind you, the long reach of sick religions, and then some memory cuts you down, reducing you once again to the only different boy in the world. I mean, astonishing, heartbreaking, but absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, I mean, you obviously had some similarities with uh, Paul Monette. You went to a uh, an all boys school uh, where you know a certain brand of man, I'd say, is what they're sort of yeah. putting out. <laughs> yeah. How did how? I mean, I guess for listeners, the thing I would compare it to is something like Eaton, something like that. 
But, you know, having gone to a similar school um, as that, did you, did that help with your connection to him? Yes, absolutely. How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel as a gay, uh, as a gay boy in in a high school like that? Yeah, I, it definitely it definitely made the connection to to Paul Monette and to the 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 book itself. Um, you know, really sort of um, I love this word when I talk about writing, like crackling. You know, sort of crackling for me because I I I was here's the thing. You know, I've met a, a good handful of men over these years who have gone to you know all boys Catholic prep schools, and our discussions and our stories are so. I, I want to say almost boringly similar. It's like, oh, you felt that too, or oh, that happened to you too. And, you know, it, it, it so it made me feel very connected to the, to this book, of course. But, you know, I mean, listen, I, I, at the time, um, when I went to high school and I, I, I wasn't out and I was figuring out who I was, you know, the best you could do sometimes is, or I could do sometimes is retreat and to sort of, you know, be very internal and very, um, you know, the smallest person in the room, if possible. And I don't, you know, I, I, I mourn those years in many ways. And I, and I think that's something that I learned to understand through reading this book. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's always sad when anyone is sort of having to, you know, I hide their light. And, and I think that that experience, uh, of my high school sort of really brought that out in me many, many times. And when you read Becoming a Man, you know, you really, he really gets into that and he really, um, brings you through pretty dark time for him. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a great quote. Um, he said in an interview, um, he said, one person's truth, if told well, just not leave anyone out. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's what I really got from that book. It's on the one hand, it's this sort of devastatingly honest and, and poignant memoir. But mm-hmm. as, as you've been saying, it also kind of reflects an entire generational experience. And so he manages to do both at the same time, which I think what is what makes a book maybe so special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and the end of the book, I mean, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I say he does finally realize that he's gay. <laughs> um, but at the end, when he says somehow it's all had a purpose once you're finally real. Yeah. And I, I really liked that use of the word real. You know, it made me think of the Velveteen Rabbit in a way. Totally. Absolutely. You know, that, that, yeah. But I think what I'd like to hear from you is your extremely memorable story about your own well not coming out i'd say uh when when somebody outed you publicly <laughs> oh there's um oh wow okay we're getting into it there's um just so you <laughs> that's know what that we do on this podcast um, we get into it we get into it <laughs> there's there's a, a storytelling fee for this one so i will send you um <laughs> i will send you a bill no it's funny because it's it's really funny that you're bringing that up because and I will of, of course happily tell you the story, um, but I had I wouldn't t- I didn't tell that story for years I this story for years I really held it back and I as I've been talking about it more I realized it it weirdly it was so painful to me even though that was not the goal at all and that's an interesting part of the story so when I was at Saturday Night Live I was there for a full season. And it was sort of rare that interns were there for a full season. Um, at the time, at least, I don't know what the policy is anymore. But I was there for a full season and thrilled because it was, 
I mean, I was 19 years old working at Saturday Night Live, and I was there for like, you know, it was like 40, 50 hours a week sometimes. It was really, really intense. And it was the heyday. It was like one of the best casts it of was Saturday Night Live ever. It was a great cast. Yeah, so it was Adam Mike Myers and Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, wow. Julia Sweeney, Melanie Hutzel, Sarah Silverman, Phil Hartman, Rob Schneider, David Spade, Tim Meadows. It was a great cast. And... um so I, um, there were interns, you know, so there were writing interns. I was a writing intern. There were like, I don't know, maybe four of us, give or take. And then, um, there were other interns, you know, throughout the, the group. And there was, um, a photography intern. Um, and she became a great friend named Laura. And she had a friend who was friends with RuPaul. So this was 1993 or so. Yeah, 1993. And, um, after the show, there's a, you know, a very famous party that happens at, you know, some kind of fabulous restaurant in New York City where people dance and drink the night away. And I would go to the parties and, um, I went to this party, uh, and RuPaul was there and RuPaul was sitting at a table with my friend Laura and then her friend, you know, their mutual friend. And we were just sitting drinking and, um, Laura, very kindly, because at the time I was doing stand-up and I, I was very immersed in this comedy world and I wanted to really explore what it meant to be a comedian. And so I was doing stand-up throughout the city, you know, at sort of open mic nights and stuff. And um, I, I got kind of far in some competition in the West Village called Stars of Tomorrow. And, you know, it was like, it was fun. It was it was an interesting experiment for me, for sure. And Laura said, hey, um, and my nickname, especially at that time, was Rocky. And she said, hey, you know, Rocky is doing stand-up. And RuPaul said, oh, that's so wonderful and good for you. And oh, it's so hard and all the things. And then said, it is, you know, so important that we are represented in, you know, the comedy world. And of course, by we, RuPaul, who was uh, not in drag uh, that night, RuPaul meant we gay men. And I was not out. <laughs> And I was sitting at a table full of Saturday Night Live, you know, chums. And it was, I think, one of the worst experiences of my life. And this has nothing to do, obviously, but it really has nothing to do with RuPaul because RuPaul was just being a kind soul, just chatting, you know. And I didn't know what to do. And the table really um, just became silent. (laughs) In the middle of a huge loud party. And, you know, then whatever. Then it picked up and whatever. And I drank a lot of drinks. And then I kind of walked home and cried. Mm. No, I can imagine, you know, because, you you know, coming out, it's such a personal, personal choice. Absolutely. And I I know, you know, other gay men who were outed uh, against their will. And, you know, it just, it does leave a a wound on your timeline. It does. It does. And... And I thought that I would, I thought I wasn't telling that story, uh, in a way to like <laughs> protect RuPaul. <laughs> but he doesn't need protection. <laughs> but really it was to protect myself because it, it, yeah, it left a big wound on my timeline. It's a great way to say it. And I, um, I'm so grateful for it in many ways because also it's a great story, but. Yeah. <laughs> it is a great story to be found. It is. <laughs> but at the same time, it um, it really affected me. It really affected me. 
And I was I was looking at some of the posts on Instagram of uh, on uh, National Coming Out Day, which was uh, what was that, a month ago, something like that. Yeah. And somebody made the comment that coming out isn't something that you do once; it's something that you do over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that, and I and I think that you know when you read a beautiful memoir like Becoming a Man, you really you really learn that. You know, I, I think it's hard sometimes to see things like that in yourself and in your own story. But it's so true. You know, there's so many moments where you sort of have to do it all over again or, you know, standing in the line at the bank and it just sort of comes up all over again for the stupidest reason. And, you know, I, I, I think that for me, Becoming a Man, the reason why I've read it so many times is I think because it really has become almost like a, a user's manual. <laughs> in many ways for me, you know, and, and, and it's just great to sort of sit, you know, quietly and spend time with someone who's such a great storyteller, Paul Monette, who's such a great storyteller and such an intimate, intimate storyteller. You know, he really lets you in, in a way that is breathtaking. And, and to, I, I think, you know, not to be morbid, but I don't, I would like to be cremated, just so you both know, just so you just jot that down. I'm, I'm, in, I'm noting that down. In the down. case of the nuclear, nuclear <laughs> exactly. thing, I think that'll be taken care of. And no, no cremation <laughs> in the bunker, Francesca, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you haven't seen my bunker. And, um, True. And that is scary. I don't want to see your bunker if there's like cremation <laughs> services. That's a scary threat. You've not seen my bunker. <laughs> <laughs> we can maybe delete that. We could delete that. It's big that. business nowadays, know. you know, though. You, know. you know, big business doing these survivalist bunkers. I know. I know. But I will yeah. say, honestly, I, I think about this. Um, um, I, we had a very, very close dear person um, pass away a year ago and, and she was cremated and, and there was a lot of discussion about that. And, you know, I, I really do believe that this book should be a part of, of that for me, it should be with me in the, mm. in the afterlife because it really, really has, it's just affected how I think about so much. I was going to say, I have a question kind of related to that, uh, more political, yeah. I guess. There's a great quote um, early on in the book where he's talking about the freedom of coming out of the closet. And uh -huh. he says, quote, every time we dance, our enemies writhe like the, wi yes. uh, the witch of Oz, melting, melting. The Nazi Pope, the rat brain politicians are wacko fundamentalists in their book of lies. And I was thinking about that Um on one sense, a lot of the things he talks about, you know, society's obviously progressed and got better. But, I mean, the Nazi Pope's not here anymore, I think. Um, but the, the, rat brain, <laughs> the rat brain politicians seem to be out in force in some ways in America. I mean, you're, you can make, maybe tell me more about this. Um, even worse than ever in terms of yeah. homophobia. And the wacko fundamentalists, well, they're getting worse, aren't they, in America? So I, I guess what I'd, I'd ask you is when you reread this book now, do you sort of see it as a sign of, oh, look at all the progress we've made? Or are you a little bit worried that maybe we're, we're kind of backsliding on that progress a little bit? Well, I don't think we're backsliding, right? I think, you know what I mean? I think that I, I, I try to look at this moment as really, and I hate to do this, but it's really sort of separating the people who are backsliding out from the people who aren't because, yes. um, you know what I mean? Because I, um, the thing that I think that the people who are the fighters are always going to be the fighters. And I have, enormous faith that we will continue to fight and to change the story as it's going right now here in the United States, especially. Um, I think when I read this book again, as a user's guide <laughs> with that lens, I think it, I think it's m more important now than ever to read this book um, and, mm -hmm. and to sort of um, 
find the fires again that maybe luck, luckily enough, we're able to sort of quiet a little bit. I think we need to, you know, throw some gasoline on them again because uh, it's a, it's rough, as we all know. It's rough out there right now. Yeah. I think that if there was one book from not just your selection, but from this whole series that I would recommend the listeners picked up, I think it would be this one. Yes. It's astonishing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, it's all, it's, it's like, it's like a triple threat, this book, right? It's beautifully written. Um, you know, it, it's such a powerful story and it really, uh, it resonates. You know, it, it, it mm. it's, it's not, it's not a book that, that goes away from your, your, your mind or your memory or your emotions very easily, which is to me is what a great book is all about. Now I'm going to uh, have one of my great uh, segues into the next book. Go. It's all about finding finding your path, you know, that, and that's exactly what <laughs> the next book is about, or a series of books. Uh, with You've chose the entire, you know, oeuvre of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I, there's a bunch of reasons. So um, I would say that, oh my gosh, I had... 50 or more of them on my bookshelf as a kid. Um, and he here's why. So um, at the time, this is pre-Swan uh, Song reading for seventh grade. So, you know, in third, fourth, fifth grade or so, I my parents, um, every Friday, we would like, you know, whatever, go get pizza or something, you know, and with my sister. And then they would stop at, and Julia, you, you might know this because Julia and I grew up in in the, the same part of New Jersey, we would go to the Morris County Mall and there was a bookstore there called The Happy Booker. And The Happy Booker was just my favorite store in the world. It had Smurfs and it had Cabbage Patch Kids and it had puffy stickers and it had like <laughs> Hummel figurines and it had potentially a cute guy behind the counter every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but also, by the way, it was a bookstore. And, but for me, I was like, you know, how many Smurfs can I buy? And, um, so my parents would say, look, you, here's whatever, 10 bucks or whatever, and you get to buy a book every week. And my sister was super into it. And I was like, oh my God, really? So when I really discovered Choose Your Own Adventure, I, they had a big rack of them and I, sort of, I, you know, was just curious, I guess, by the, the, you know, the title. And when I realized that you, the way you read that book was by skipping around from, you know, all this page to page 43 to page 98 to page two, I realized that no one would ever know how slow I read because they would never really know where I was in the story. And that unlocked something really important for me because I felt true ownership over my reading speed. And I felt as if, I would never, listen, no one in my world was ever grabbing a book out of my hands being like, you're only on page 22. I mean, that never happened, but there was, there was huge embarrassment, uh, connected to how slow I read. I'm still a pretty slow reader, by the way. Um, and so, so, so there's that. That's why I love the format. And also, you know, the, the name, choose your own adventure and all the great art on that cover was just, Really, I mean, they were really, they were nailing it, in my opinion, especially at that time. And also the stories are great, you know, I mean, for a young, you know, 
boy in 1984 or five, whenever it was that I started reading them, it was just like, it was like reading, you know, Indiana Jones or, you know, it was like reading an incredible, you know, adventure story. Cause it had the, the nature of, of the, of the thing is that it has to be adventure somehow. Cause you have to make decisions along the way. And so mm-hmm. it, it just really, really spoke to me. And my parents were thrilled. They were so, so happy that I, that I had discovered this series. Now, do you remember the five-finger bookmark? That just sounds no, dirty. That? Well, I know. What's well, that? Well, you know, like when you're, <laughs> when you're reading, because I used to read them as well. I loved them too. And, you know, you didn't want to make the wrong choice because oh, if you made right. the wrong choice, <laughs> you ended up dead. The story ended, right, whatever. Right. So you would like keep one finger in, you know, where, where it was telling, giving you the choice. Then you would look ahead and see what the first choice got you to. And then you'd look ahead, see what the second choice got you to. And then, you know, you would choose which one and then you could always go back in the story. So, I mean, there's, there's entire articles online about the five-finger bookmark that's a riot <laughs> when listeners heard you say five-finger bookmark i would say 50 percent of them went innocent and 50 percent of them did not i would say true <laughs> <laughs> oh. well i think that you know and i i wonder you know reading these books um how influential they were with you with the books that you've written recently the the pathfinder society yeah which is yeah. of course about about a grand adventure on the scale of like scooby-doo meets goonies do you want to chat a bit about that sure yeah i you know i so i have um i i write i write the pathfinder society with a very good friend who i met at nyu you know 100 years ago named named prescott and we you know we had at NYU, we sort of entered every writing competition. I, I was in school for writing. He was in school for directing. We were, you know, we were a good couple, a, a good couple that way, sort of like, you know, our brains sort of creating things, uh, sort of from different points of view, but always often linked, you know, together pretty easily. And, um, years ago, I was home is when I was living in Brooklyn. So this is quite a while ago. And I was home and I don't even know why this happened, but I watched the movie, um, Oh my god! Click! What are, click. Oh my god! Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for your research. Thank you oh, for your research. You're welcome. That, that could have been awkward. Oh That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so, Click was the Adam Sandler movie where he got like this magical remote control that he could sort of control his life. He could pause and rewind and whatever. It's the stupidest movie, but it's charming in its way. It's much so better I than called, it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So I called Prescott and I said, Hey, um, let's write click two and just make some money. Like, like, by the way, like the world is waiting for two random people to write click two. And he was like, yeah, what if we wrote something that we actually cared about? I was like, Oh, fine. All right. So we had this idea about five kids who come together and who through whatever experience we, you know, we put them through, um, that they come out on the other side with a different self-knowledge than the, that they had before. So obviously this is a theme in my work, but, and in my interest, but, um, and weirdly we started by putting them in a courthouse as like interns in a courthouse, which was super interesting on some level. Cause we did a tour of a courthouse in Scott's hometown and it was like, Oh, whoa, like this is great. Cause they really gave us like a behind the scenes tour of the courthouse but it sort of left me, and I think at the end of the day, Prescott feeling a little flat, you know, for for 10-year-olds to be reading about a courthouse. 
And there's an incredible, in Scott's hometown of Doylestown, Pennsylvania, there's an incredible um, museum that's a castle built of concrete that a man named Henry Mercer created uh, to store all of the things that he found in his exploration and his journeys throughout the world. And it is the strangest, creepiest, coolest collection of things you've ever seen. And he took me there and I was like, why don't we set the story here? So... We have three um, three books in a graphic novel series called The Pathfinder Society. It's about five friends who go to summer camp, or five people who go to, kids who go to summer camp, and uh, are very sort of unlikely friends, but get put together in a group to do sort of like the annual treasure hunt. And they sort of get to be on, they realize they're on a real treasure hunt for a treasure that has been lost and missing in this town for years. And um, it's been incredible. Incredible and 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 so much fun. Um, writing a graphic novel is not an easy task, and it is not for it is not for the weak. Um, but we've find, I think we really learned our pattern together. But it, it's a it's a challenge for sure. Um, and so yeah, so to bring it back to choose your own adventure, absolutely one hundred percent choose your own adventure influenced that. Absolutely. Mm. And graphic novels are actually really, I mean, I think graphic novel, novel sales went up 60%, 62% into 2021 wow. uh, in the US and Canada. So it's a good well, I, good area to be in. I love graphic novels as an art form. I read, I'm a massive graphic novel geek, confession time. Um, uh-huh. So I actually read The Mystery of the Moon Tower, the first Pathfinder uh-huh. Society one. I absolutely loved it, I have to say. Um, Thank you. I, I particularly love how um, each, of the, each of the kids has like their own talent. So you've yes. got one who's like, um, I think, who's really good at magic. You've got one yes. who's a math math whiz. I should say math, not maths, because we're talking to an American. Um, <laughs> we've got a guy who likes to invent stuff. And yeah. um, and the way that kind of comes out throughout the story, um, I just, yeah, I just found it a joy to read, actually. And it I think it sort of taps, I don't know if you did this on purpose, it really taps into that sort of 80s revival vibe, you know, Indiana Jones, yeah. Stranger yeah. Things, National Treasure. Is that 80s? Not really. That's just Nicolas Cage. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, he transcends or, time. Yeah, Nicolas Cage yeah. transcends time in the universe, yeah. Um, so I don't know if that was a pur- purposeful thing, but I think it just really taps into that vibe at the moment. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, It was purposeful and because actually, I- it really, just sorry, it was purposeful because it's where we think our storytelling was like where we learn storytelling. So we really leaned into it. Right. That makes mm, sense. No, definitely. The eighties yeah. was great for that. I think we had like the best movies, yeah. but anyway, I digress. Um, I had a copy of it with me uh, at swimming last night and I got you another sale. Cause one of the other moms <laughs> was like, Oh, that looks like something my son would really like. And um, you know, it, it's interesting with graphic novels because uh, you, you said how the choose your own adventure books helped you get in, more into reading, but you know, my daughter is des- dyslexic and I find that graphic novels for her is a really good gateway into reading. So I mean, maybe that's part of the, the new popularity. I don't know, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Also, I think, you know, here's the thing. I mean, I, I, as a child of the eighties, it's like I had, you know, I had some distractions, right? I had an Atari, I had Scooby-Doo, but you know, I, I look at kids today and the, the amount of distractions they have from sitting down with a book are sort of mm. infinite. And so I mm. think that's also why graphic novels have really um, sort of grown so much in sales because what what we find, you know, in children's publishing is that the gatekeepers, librarians, teachers, grandparents, you know, parents, um, finally came around to the fact that 
a kid is reading when they're reading a graphic novel. It might it might be a different way of reading, but they are reading. And you know, it's graphic novels have been really, really embraced by the school community, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, that actually brings us nicely onto um, you as a publisher. So, what sort of trends are you seeing in children's publishing right now? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean. For me, I think that they change so quickly. You know, we, my group really tries to be in, on, in the trend world, um, with the balance of just, you know, great, good storytelling. And that's sometimes a very hard balance. Um, I think the, tr- a trend that has been going on for a long time and for good reason is humor and especially humor for boys. Um, I think getting, I think it's about getting, you know, boys are often the reluctant readers of, of the world. And I think, um, it's about getting them to read. It's about sort of giving them stories that they can, you know, laugh at and have fun with. Um, you know, it, I, I'm quoting someone at a conference and I can't remember who said this, but it was a great way to say it. it's like, you know, w- when you're, when you're saying to boys, you know, Anne of Green Gables is a great book, you know, they might not agree and that's okay. <laughs> like that's okay. If that's not their interest, if that's not the thing they want to read. And, and so, um, humor for boys has been a very, very big, big thing. And, and I think, um, I think that the industry has really risen to the occasion and it's been really nice to see that. Um, one of, one of the, uh, uh, almost constant bestseller, I'm not the publisher of it, but, but it is published by Penguin is an incredibly fun, fun series, um, silly and zany series, um, called The Last Kids on Earth by Max Brelier. And that's a constant bestseller. Um, I feel like maybe they're up to book 10 or so. And so it's been really great to see the rise uh, of that series. Um, I, I know Max and he's a lovely guy. So, uh, it's been nice to see it for him, but it's nice been nice to see it for the industry too. Um, and then I also I think in terms of trends, I feel like we're really in a place of like stories of like <laughs> kind of do it yourself and like young entrepreneurs. I think is something that that we're seeing a lot of. Oh, interesting. Yeah, really interesting. and we get a lot. I see a lot of submissions in this category of like. You know, we're, we publish a very sweet series about a little boy who wants to be a life coach and it's wonderful <laughs> and charming. And, you know, and we're, we're really seeing that, that, those kind of like adult themes of like, you know, being who you want to be and learning how to be who you want to be as, you know, in the workforce really. You know, it's a life here. choice. It's a choice. Yeah. It's, a it's choice. called the wrong career. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. I'm such a dick. Sorry. I have a question, actually, if you don't mind, Francesco. I have a few friends who are trying to write uh, some middle grade books. Um, so, do you have any advice, just sort of general, very specific advice for someone trying to kind of crack the industry and, and write a great sort of middle grade children's book? Um, I put you on the I spot just, there. I apologize. No, you didn't at all. I just, I just, I just edited myself tremendously. Um, <laughs> Don't edit. Let it all out. Let it all out. I, well, the first response is going to be "Don't send it to me," and then the second response is going to be "Don't do, don't do it." No, but none of those things are true. Um, I probably won't tell them that. <laughs> no, um, you know, here's what I, I here's what I I think is 
is the most important thing, at least from my point of view. And I, you could ask 10, you know, 10 people in, the, in, in publishing and you get 10 different answers. But I think voice is super, super, super important it, always, but certainly for this age group that that voice, the voice of the character is number one, really authentic because kids, as as we all know, can call bullshit from miles away. And um, and I also think that it has to be, for me, I find that the story that, you know, someone wants to tell has to be a very singular, authentic story. Listen, doesn't mean that it can't be a similar topic or a similar story as another book. I mean, that's impossible, right? But what I find is a lot of things that I read in submissions, um, it's like, quote, I'm writing a children's book. And I don't think that's how you should think about it at all. You're writing a great story. It happens, right. so happens that the readership is younger, but it doesn't mean that you're, you should be going in saying, I'm writing a book and it's going to have these phrases and I'm going to, you know, like, I feel like people think there's some formula that makes something children's. And the only thing that makes something children's is that the readership happens to be, you know, whatever, 10 years old, eight years old. And, um, that's why I think voice is the thing that pushes, that pushes through a lot of these things. Voice is, is the thing that really carries a story and I think makes it really relatable and believable for kids. And I think the interesting thing about you is that you are, you've been on both sides of the aisle and you've been, you are a publisher and you are also writer. So you understand the joys of, of rejection as well. Cause oh, I assume, yes. I assume you hasn't been all smooth sailing. You don't just send it and they go, Oh yes, that's Francesco's book. Yes. Well, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's very true. Um, yeah, being on both sides is really, it's really useful. And it's, um, it sometimes is a little maddening. Um, if I'm on the writing side, it can be a little maddening cause I know, I know things, but, um, it, 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 I think being on both sides of the desk has been, and I hope, really useful for the authors that I publish because I can speak, I can speak, you know, on both sides and I can hopefully really be someone who's not just a champion on the publishing side, but as a, as a creator and knowing how hard it is to sit down and write, you know, that, that, that I can be a champion for them on that side as well. And, um, it's, it's, it's a really nice place. It's a nice position to be in. Honestly, it, it's nice to be able to help someone bring something to the world that they've been thinking about and worrying about and crafting for, you know, however long. Hmm. Well, you, the last book on your list is uh, another children's book yes. called Nobody's Fault by Patricia Herm Hermes. Uh -huh. um, I <laughs> did not get to read this one, but I'm going to hand over to Ed because... <laughs> Wow. I know you said in your notes, you said, you said, don't bother to try to track this down. But guess what? That was like a red rag to a bull for Ed. I, <laughs> yes, I love a good book challenge. So I read that and thought, uh, I shall prove you wrong. So I jumped on eBay, the greatest site in the world, some would say. Yeah. Um, and I immediately tracked it down and um, I got it sent to me. And I actually paid three more dollars to get the signed version because why, why would oh. you? Oh. Yeah, so I now have a signed copy of um, of Nobody's Fault. Uh, so, I mean, if, if you want that, Francesco, you know, happy to send it to you. Um, wow, that's impressive. So, yeah, and uh, it's, it's really nice, actually. I think it's like um, she's thanking someone for reading the book or something in, in the front. So, uh, Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Um, so I was very smug about that, and that smugness was immediately um, destroyed when I went on the emotional journey. That is Nobody's <laughs> Fault. So if... <laughs> 
so if, if you just give me two minutes, I want to explain to the listeners um, what this book is about. Because, oh, I'd love um, to hear you do it. I'd love to yeah, hear you okay, do it. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it. Let's explain the plot. So I, I went into this not knowing, it's quite rare when you go into a book, literally not knowing what's about to happen or what it's about. Um, so it's quite refreshing. So this book is about Emily, who I believe is, is around middle grade age. I forget. I think she's like 11 or 12. Um, mm-hmm. I've forgotten. And she has an older brother called Matt, who she calls Mons, short for monster, because he's a bit, he's a bit of a dick in that kind of way that older brothers often are, you know. But he's, yes. he's, he's, he's actually very sweet, but, you know, he's, um, he, he plays pranks on her. So she decides to get her own back one day. She finds a dead snake and decides that uh, she's going to plant it in his bedroom. And while she's in his bedroom, he's out mowing the lawn. And he comes across a nest of wasps. And at this point, the listeners are thinking, oh, no, there could be an accident about to happen here. In which case, you are not ready for what's about to happen. Um, so he gets stung by these, these wasps. And then the, the lawnmower runs him over, kills him, like yeah. destroys him. Um, yeah. And then she she comes down from the bedroom where she's been planting a dead snake. Hears the sound the, of the idling lawnmower, comes out, finds his dead body covered in blood at this point i'm just thinking right you know i don't know where this is going but let's just go with it um Mm -hmm. obviously she's in denial that he's dead so she carries his dead body into the house police come ambulance come the parents come the dad breaks down um described in great emotional detail and she's obviously in complete denial so she can't believe that he's dead she writes in a diary that he's going to come home from hospital the next day um, and it soon becomes clear, she gets increasingly sick over the next few days, that she is guilty because she feels that if she hadn't been planting a snake in the bed, then um, he, he might, she might have heard what's happening and been able to help him. And then eventually she goes to a therapist and there's actually these, these wonderful scenes where the therapist is just playing backgammon with her and um, not even talking to her. And eventually um, she realises that it's not her fault. And, and, and it, it's a brilliant book. It's amazing. It's brutal. Um, I think every child should read it, but wow, was I not prepared. Should they? Should they? Well, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in, in children need to see brutality. Okay. Um, that, that comes came out a bit weird. How many children do you have? Uh, none, thankfully. Uh, thank God for that. Um, yeah. Like literally, Goodreads is just like review after review of people going, this book affected me. And some are like in a good way. And some are like, I still can't talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously I, I'm joking. I've, I've exaggerated the lawnmower a bit, but that is absolutely insane. Can I just say that? It's like a scene from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, so I've, I've exaggerated that, but for comic effect, but seriously, I just think it, it's stunning the way it handles such grief and such loss. There's a great scene. And um, I will stop talking after this and let you talk Francesco, but um, there's a great scene with a therapist where um, it's almost like the scene from Goodwill Hunting, where do you remember at the end, Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Yes. And Matt Damon breaks down and I won't do my Matt Damon impression, but he goes, not you as well, not you as well. And he goes, it's not your fault. And then eventually, you know, he cries. And um, the therapist says to her, he says, well, it, surely it's your mum's fault because she was out that day. Surely it's your sister's fault for blah, 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 blah. And she eventually says, no, it's not. It's not their fault. It was an accident. And that's when she realizes that it's not her fault as well. Mind blowing mm. scene um, amidst all this you know, brutality. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's amazing. But wow, did you put me through something, Francesco? <laughs> I am sorry. I, I, I admire you for getting the signed copy and for reading it. I, I really thought it was just one of these books that we would just sort of, you know, I would just sort of chat through. But I really yeah. appreciate how deep you went. 
Well, that's what we do for our guests. That's what we do. <laughs> but I mean, my, my, my question for you is, um, well, why, why did you pick this? And um, did it affect you in the same way it affected me? Absolutely. It absolutely did. Um, I got it from the Scholastic Book Clubs and um, I read it, I want to say like, honestly, like 20 times. I just, wow. I, 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 but here's, okay, so <laughs> here's why I think, here's why I think it, it really resonated. Because the one thing that you didn't say about the brother is that secretly I think he was hot. And so, at least in my brain, my fourth grade brain, he was hot. And so, okay, sexy. Um, I don't and think so I think says that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I think that there was something about, um, there was something about, and I know it was a brother and sister relationship, but there was something about the way that he is thought of and she thinks of him throughout the book that felt, I want to say exciting, but that sounds dirty and I don't mean it this way. That felt, um, it felt like a, an emotion that I wasn't allowed to have about boys. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I got very, I, I think I got very connected to her journey of losing this guy who was potentially hot, but also, you know, really took care of her. And so there was something about, about that, that just really, um, spoke to my, like, queer fourth grade brain i love this because it, it almost goes back to the hungry caterpillar and this idea of interpretation you know i would never yeah. thought of it like that but obviously that's the whole point you know these books have so many layers of interpretation absolutely it gave me it gave space it gave emotional space around granted a you know a fictional character but around a male character that i just never really had before and i think that is the thing that i really connected to I mean, reading some of the reviews on Goodreads, there was one person <laughs> who did not say that. But what they said was that, you know, they've all, always had quite a depressive personality. And from reading this and seeing the effect that losing that child had on the parents in the book, that it made, you know, her promise herself that no matter how depressed she got, she would never take her own life. Um, so, I mean, this book, you know, it's a simple children's book from the Scholastic Book Fair, but it seems to have had a really lasting impact on a lot of people um, out there. I'm I'm glad I never read it because I think that it would have destroyed me. But um, you know, it's <laughs> but it's amazing. You know, the things that we do hook onto from our childhood and the books that become important to us um, for for whatever reasons. Absolutely. I would have loved to have been an editor on that book or just been in a room where she's pitching it to the editor and she says, so he's like, well, how, how is the brother going to die? And, <laughs> and uh, he, she goes, well, he's going to get stung by wasps. And he's like, okay, that's, I can see that. And then he's going to get run over by an electric lawnmower. And he just, his face is... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it will surprise anybody here to know that the same author wrote the book from the movie My Girl. Right, that's right. <gasps> Oh, the, that's the, the right. Beasting, the beasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beastings. There's Mine. a there's so a bee obviously, thing. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's a lawnmower in my girl. I forget. No, not that I know of. Just just the bees. Uh, just bees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she's she's the bee author. <laughs> <laughs> what a journey! What a journey these books are. I I didn't even really think about that. <laughs> yeah, you've taken us on so many emotional journeys. 
Well, Francesco, <laughs> we didn't get to pick our own adventure uh, today. We went on yours. And I'm glad we did because whether it's telling us about your nuclear bunker, uh, <laughs> navigating the five finger bookmark, or giving advice to would be children's authors, PS, don't do it. Uh, you've been insightful, <laughs> honest, and hilarious. And if anyone's not enjoyed this, it's definitely not nobody's fault. It's theirs. So I hope you've enjoyed your. T- <laughs> I warned you. I hope you've enjoyed your time. Even though this has been less live from New York, it's Saturday night and more recorded in the UK. It's Tuesday afternoon, and that's our swan song. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me. And before we go, I do want to say that we have a really great book in, from Julia called Shooters. Available in March. That's right, in March. And um, I was lucky enough to read it in manuscript form and just had such a blast with it. It's sexy and it's fun and it's a little naughty here and there. And I just really, um, I can't wait to get the actual copy. I've ordered my copy already. And I would recommend that all of your listeners do the same. Oh, thank you very much. Of course. You've... You've warmed the cockles of me heart. I, <laughs> I need to get a new like British saying. I, I kind of like it. Was that, was that you putting on a British accent? Because that was terrible. <laughs> I know, I know. Do not, do not ask me to do a British accent. It is not. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Get your latest book fix with the two little chicks. Oh, I really loved that chat. What about you, Ed? Yeah, that was amazing. What a what a funny, insightful guy. What a pleasure to chat to. And you did very well on your first podcast. Thank you, Julia. I definitely wasn't sweating throughout <laughs> profusely. <laughs> I feel like it would make a good choose your own adventure, you know, like you, know, you get to the end of the chapter. If you want Ed to crash and burn, go to page 35. Yeah, if you, if you want, want if you want Ed to get cancelled, go to page 46. <laughs> I've got I went to the library. I took out a um choose your own adventure book because you know they're still doing them now and it's called zombie apocalypse and there's a picture of a bunch of zombies and some very scared looking children on the cover wow we should have mentioned that because that goes to the topic of the of the nuclear the zombie apocalypse bunker that we kept I know. referencing it's really really has been the theme of the day hasn't it yeah so <laughs> so listeners please please write in or social in whatever and tell us what you would do in the event of a zombie apocalypse, would you hide in a bunker with me and Francesco? Or would you go running around with a shotgun shouting like Julia? <laughs> no, I think I that's what you said. I might just put no, words in your mouth. Eh? You might have just put some more in my mouth. I think I, I was just going to die. <laughs> oh, just, okay. Would, yeah, would you die or would you have wine with me and Francesco? <laughs> yeah, okay. Wonder what they'll say. <laughs> And this episode, I'm delighted to have Lindsay Kroll, who's going to tell us about the book that changed her life. I should say Lindsay is a prolific short story writer, a big part of the Edinburgh um, SFF scene, and she's got her own book out on submission now. So uh, take it away, Lindsay. When asked about the book that changed my life, I immediately thought of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. It's a space opera following a found family motley crew of a spaceship that gets drawn into a world in conflict that's bigger than themselves. Now, I love everything Becky Chambers has written. Her characters and relationships feel so real. Her stories are challenging but wholesome in a way that makes you feel all the emotions. Um, And her science is innovative, believable, while never feeling too complex. But The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet was so important to me for some specific reasons. In my late teens to early 20s, I went through a phase of just stopping reading and writing, and 
having been an avid reader and writer from a very young age, this was a real shift. And I don't think I realised how much I missed it until I got it back. Anyway, I happened to pick up The Long Way in my final year of uni. And for the first time in years, I was absorbed entirely in a book. I felt like I'd just spent a few days with these characters and really cared about their journeys. After that, I started reading again and I was reminded of my love for far away and fantastical worlds. But maybe more importantly, that year was when I picked up my pen and laptop and began writing again. And I've barely stopped since. So I will now devour anything Becky Chambers publishes. Recently, the Monk and Robot novellas, which are so wholesome and beautiful, I recommend them to any reader. But that first one in her Wayfarer series, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, will always have that special place for me because it reignited a passion for all things books and writing, as cheesy as that sounds. Well, that's really great, Lindsay. Thank you for that. And uh, listeners, if you do one thing this week, if you could go over to the Two Lit Chicks website and sign up for our newsletter, we're planning some competitions throughout December, uh, you know, in the run up to Christmas. So please do, um, yeah, just subscribe and tell all your friends to subscribe. And this is actually our last episode of season two. Quite exciting. It is exciting. Do we do we get to tease the listeners with some of the authors next season, or is that is that keeping under? No, under well, wraps? I think we could tease a few of them. Shall we? Shall we say who our first author is? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I've forgotten. So, so, so you say? <laughs> <laughs> How could you forget? The first author that we'll be speaking to in season three is drumroll, uh, Damien Barr. Oh yeah! How, how did I forget that? That's actually amazing. Yeah, yeah, we had no, Bar. really excited to to chat with him. And then after that, we've got Joe Browning Rowe, whose book A Terrible Kindness was a big success. And after that, we've got Millie Johnson for Valentine's Day. And I know there's a fantasy author that you are very keen to tell us about. So we have uh, Fonda Lee. If you're if you're not a fancy fan, you know you, you might not be jumping up out your desk screaming but if you are a fantasy fan then I know you're going to be really excited about this because she is one of the biggest fantasy authors in the world right now I'd say um she wrote the trilogy the Greenbone Saga it's Jade City Jade War and Jade Legacy I won't start telling you what they're about now but trust me they're absolutely amazing a lot of people saying it's one of the best fantasy trilogies ever and I as you can tell from my incessant rambling I'm so so excited to talk to Fonda Lee it's going to be absolutely amazing so tune in for that yeah and I'm a big fantasy fan but I haven't read her so I am really excited to uh to do that because the only way I get to read books these days is if somebody on the podcast chooses it so just I mean it, it, it ties into the theme of nobody's fault actually in terms of emotional devastation you know the end of the end of that trilogy <laughs> is just prepare yourself for not going out the house for the next week because you're just sort of emotionally brutalized so i apologize in oh, well on that on that note i think we only have one la- thing left to say and that is <laughs> well jen's not here to do it anymore so i'll do it uh listeners we love you So I didn't just sound mental. Don't knock your unique selling pointer. <laughs> <laughs>